the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Clive, thank you so much. Um, thank you. It's, it is such a joy to be here. Thank you very, very much. Um, I think I was first invited to do the New Key Weekend in 2020. Uh, so finally we're here, which is, uh, which is, which is great. Um, thank you for your perseverance. I sent someone earlier that said, obviously you've invited me, you've got to have me at some point, and today's the day. So, so here I am. Uh, and that's where we have come down from, I just said. If you're interested, it looks like that. Uh, it, is, it is beautiful. And um, it was originally built in 18, finished in 1820 for a family of five and their 30 servants. And then it was bought in uh, 1946 by a returning British Army major, an evangelist called Ian Thomas. And uh, he, he asked his wife to bid for it uh, at an auction in Lancaster Town Hall, September the 11th, 46. And she paid £7,800 for the hall, 150 acres and three lodge houses. And uh, a few months ago, we were, we were offered just about the same amount of money just for one of the fireplace surrounds, one of the marble fireplaces. Uh, we said no. Um, but lots of you have been to visit us, and, we, and we, that's been very, very lovely. Thank you so much for doing that. As Penny said, we, we're in family groups. One of, the, one of the fondest memories of our time at Belmont was our home groups, and, and this is the kind of equivalent of those. So that, that was the family group who've just left. They graduated on Thursday night, and they've all headed home now, um, and, uh, and that was them on their graduation night looking, looking nice and smart, but uh, they're a great joy. Um, we, we had a former principal of Cape and Rag, called Charles Price, who was with us uh, a few weeks ago, and he was talking to the staff, and he said to them, um, he'd lived at Cape and Ray for over 20 years, um, back in the 80s and 90s, and he said to them, Cape and Ray is one of my favorite places on earth. And I, I heard him say, use that phrase, and I thought, I wonder if someone asked me, What's your, what, what are your favorite places on earth? What would you say? And seriously, and this is going to sound really cheesy, but honestly, it's true. The first thing that popped into my mind was this room. The first thing that popped in my mind was this room. And I think it's just because there's been so much in, in this and, and the former main hall, the hall now, uh, that has been so just pivotal in our lives. Uh, we got married here. Um, we've, seen, we've received so much fantastic teaching here. We have seen so many friendships forged here. We've seen so many weddings here. We've seen so many funerals here. The, the community, not that this building necessarily represents, beautiful as it is, but uh, it's the people, isn't it? It's not the building, but, um, but this, is, this is one of our favorite places on earth, this community. And, it, and it's just a, a fantastic privilege to be back with you. So thank you for that huge honor. Anyway, should we get on with what we're supposed to be doing? Uh, we're thinking about um, what it is to be in Christ. This is David Foster Wallace. Wallace was an American author and novelist and essayist, journalist, uh, who was about my age, took his own life in 2008, tragically. As far as I know, not, not a believer. But if you ever, ever get a chance to read anything Foster Wallace wrote, always, always very interesting. So in an extended essay he wrote called This Is Water, uh, here's his account of going shopping. Okay, here's his account of going shopping. The traffic jams and the crowded aisles and the long checkout lines give me time to think. And if I don't make a conscious decision about how to think and what to pay attention to, I'm going to be miserable every time I have to food shop because my natural default setting is the certainty 
that situations like this are really all about me, about my hungriness and my fatigue and my desire just to get home. Thinking this way is my natural default setting. It's the automatic unconscious belief that I am the center of the world and that my immediate needs and feelings are what should determine the world's priorities. Like I say, as far as I know, Foster Wallace was not a Christian. I, I, I find that such an interesting quotation for two reasons. Isn't that a, a, an incredible phrase? I have to make, close to the top, a conscious decision about how to think and what to pay attention to. Isn't that a great insight? Do you find that? Paul says, doesn't he, in Romans, we'll be transformed as our minds are renewed. I have to make a conscious decision what I'm going to focus on and what I'm going to think about. Otherwise, I'm going to be miserable, he says. I think that's a great insight. And then I find this an incredibly clear definition of sin from somebody who, as far as I'm aware, is not a believer. My Sorry, I keep getting a little interesting signal offering me a Belmont Wi-Fi account. That's exciting. Um, I'll switch that off in a second session. Um, but th this is a great definition of sin, isn't it? It's the automatic, unconscious belief that I am the centre of the world. Isn't that a great definition of sin? The automatic, unconscious belief that I am the centre of the world. How do, we, how do we beat that? How do we stop doing that? I, I need to stop doing that. How, how do we do it? This is an uh, a Italian journalist called Mattia Ferraresi, and he's writing mid-pandemic in the New York Times, and he says this, holy water isn't a hand sanitizer and prayer is not a vaccine, but for believers, religion is a fundamental source of spiritual healing and hope. It is a remedy against despair, providing psychological and emotional support that's, that is an integral part of well-being. It is an antidote to loneliness, which several medical experts point to as one of the most worrisome public health issues of our time. All true. All true. What I want to ask is, what is that based on? Is it based on reality? What is it that brings a remedy against despair? What is it that genuinely provides psychological and emotional support? What is it that actually beats loneliness? What, what is this religious faith that he speaks of so generically, what's it actually based on? Is there any reality to it? Or is it just a kind of wishful thinking? Uh, I've, and for me, increasingly transformative over these last few years has been what the, the posh phrase the theologians give it, if you need one, which we don't, is, is union with Christ. But it's just the idea that we are one with Jesus. We could not be closer. I am in him and he is in me. And what we're going to think about briefly this morning, and then we'll come back and, and do a little bit of implications of it for the final session uh, late this afternoon. We're just going to think about how this doctrine should actually impact all those very, very real moments of life. What, what breaks me out of that kind of natural tendency to selfish introversion, that kind of ingrowing toenail instinct we all have to kind of turn in? and obsess about us, rather than turning out into the fullness and the abundance and the mission of life in the Lord Jesus Christ, as that first song that Andy was blessing us with was helping us with. By the way, great to be with Andy. Um, where did we meet? Keswick, I think it was, was it? We, we worked together at Keswick, and Andy was all set to come up to Cape and Ray and do a concert for us, and it was going to be brilliant, and then COVID! Grrr. But uh, yeah, so that's, that's where we're going this, this, um, 
this morning and this evening. Helpfully, Calvin says, the mystery of being in Christ is by its nature incomprehensible. Thanks, John. That's, uh, that's, that's helpful. But he's, he's right. In, in a sense, not, he doesn't mean it's not worth thinking about or it's entirely um, uh, unfathomable. He, simply, he, he means we're never going to get to the bottom of this. We're never going to get to the bottom of this. And he's right. So we're just going to scratch the surface um, this morning. And I'm aware as well that for lots of us, none of this will be new. For lots of us, none of this will be new. And it might just be a helpful reminder as, uh, as we kind of press on together in the Lord Jesus. Maybe slightly more helpfully um, would be this insight from Piper. John Piper says this, the best thing in the universe is to be united to Christ. Is that how you'd have finished that sentence? What's the best thing in the universe? Well, he finishes it. The best thing in the universe is to be united to Christ, to be in Christ, to enjoy union with Christ. When this is fully understood, nothing is greater experientially Nothing is greater theologically. You cannot experience anything greater than the fullness of union with Christ. And nothing reaches higher in theology. And nothing is more theologically comprehensive than the fullness of union with Christ. Love it. Love it. If, if we can just start to just, just dip our toe into some of that depth uh, today, that would, that would be fantastic. Uh, Clive read for us very, very helpfully. By the way, I understand that there's some Burnside bingo going on. Where, where this is a Christine Hughes initiative, I think, where they're, they're waiting for particular phrases that I, I always use, apparently. Uh, cruel, I think, on my first straight back, but that's who you are. Uh, so apparently I always say, which Clive read so beautifully. Uh, so you can tick that one off. Tick that one off. Which Clive read so beautifully and vividly. Tick that one off as well. There you go. Get it out of your systems now. Uh, we're going to focus on, on these verses, John 14, 20, that were right in the, in, the, in the heart of that John 14 passage. And Jesus says this. He says, on that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. The most useful thing we're ever going to hear in any time we gather together as Christians is God's word. And what would be great would be if you forget everything else I say today, which you probably will, uh, how about we at least try to remember this verse? Could we try that? So if you, ha you may already know this verse off by heart, but should we just try memorizing John 14, 20? So, so we've got this to carry away with us today. So can we say it together? Is that okay? From the screen. This is the NIV. Shall we? On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me. And I am in you, John 14, 20. Again, on that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you, John 14, 20. One more time. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you, John 14, 20. Thank you. Well done. And as I say, that, that essence, we're in Christ and he's in us, is what, it's what the, the scholars call union with Christ. Union with Christ. That's what we're thinking about. Should we just look at that verse for a few minutes and just see what we can, we can draw out of it? First of all, this phrase, on that day, what day? What, what day do we realize that, that the Son is in the Father and, and that, that we are in Jesus and he's in us? What, what day are we talking about? Well, if we track back in John 14... He's talking about the day when the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, comes upon the disciples. That, that seems to be the day that Jesus is referring to. 
which is also the day, of course, that he will come to them. So uh, he, he's with them physically at this point, and then he's going to die on the cross for the forgiveness of sin, and then he's going to be resurrected from the dead, giving newness of life to everyone who's trusted in him. And then he's physically, bodily going to ascend to heaven. And the disciples are rightly worried about that because they still want him with them. So how is Jesus going to be with them if he's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven? Well, the spirit of truth is going to come and make his home in them, the Holy Spirit. And when the spirit arrives, the son arrives as well. When the spirit comes, the son comes as well. The spirit brings the son. Uh, we have a God who is three and a God who is one. And when one person of the Trinity is with us, they're all going to be with us. So the Spirit comes and brings the Son with him. And that day happens, Paul tells of it later, when a human being believes. Paul says, when you believed, when you trusted in the Lord Jesus, when you put the weight of your life on Christ, when you recognize that, that the only way you were going to become fully alive, the only way you were going to know forgiveness, the only way you were going to know a relationship with your creator was trusting in the finished work of Jesus when you trusted that, that's when the Spirit arrives in our lives. When we believe we were marked with the, pro with the promised Holy Spirit, is what Paul says. So if you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have realized that Jesus is in the Father, and we are in Christ, and Jesus is in us. Is in us. That's, that's, that's union with Christ. Let's, let's think about this little phrase. I am in my Father. Isn't it amazing that we get this insight into what the relationship is uh, within the persons of the Godhead, who is our creator? Isn't that incredible that we, that we can see insights into their relationship? So here, Jesus describes his relationship with his father. So the, the second person of the Trinity describes his relationship with the first person of the Trinity. And it's this language of being in, being in. I am in my Father, which is an image of phenomenal intimacy, isn't it? I, I get more and more gripped by the doctrine of the Trinity, which, for, if I'm honest, for years in my Christian life was something I was slightly scared of. It was a kind of a, a mystery I, 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 I was slow in embracing. And as I've got a little bit older, I've just got more and more gripped by the doctrine of the Trinity. And if you want a great book on Trinity, Tim Chester's Delighting in the Trinity is a great place to start. And Chester says this, the persons of the Trinity share one divine nature. It's a community of being. God is not a solitary individual, but a divine community. God is persons in relationship. And, and the way that the relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit is described in this verse is this language of inness. I am in the Father. And then that privilege, that intimacy is extended to us. We, I am in you and you are in me. In the same way that Jesus says that I am in the Father. So this incredible intimacy that exists within the nature of our creator, Father, Son and Spirit, that's extended to us. We're allowed in. We're allowed in. Isn't, isn't that beautiful? Tick it off again. Isn't that beautiful? And there's this in language all, all over this, isn't there? Should we just think a little bit about what it means for one person to be in another person? If, if, someone, if someone had said, as we were all mingling today, oh, it's, it's really great to see you. You know what? 
I feel like I am in you. How would you have responded to that? Whoa, what are you talking about? You feel like you're in me? It's, it's weirdly intimate language, isn't it? How, how do we use that language when we're talking about, about one another? How, how do we use it when we talk about relationship? What does it mean for one person to be in another person? Well, I, I can think of three ways we use it. We use it when, what, when life is being created, don't we? When one person is in another person uh, and, and, and the act of lovemaking is creating life, we'd use it in that situation, wouldn't we? Or we'd use it when a mother is, is carrying a child. When life is being born, one person is, is literally in another person. Uh, our Bible school secretary is currently pregnant with twins and they're boys. And, uh, and they had a sonogram this week. And, and Charlotte said, the twins, these twin boys are facing each other. And she was watching them punch each other <laughs> in the womb. That's, that bodes well, doesn't it? But... Um, uh, but, yeah, we'd use it in that way, wouldn't we? Like, one person is carrying life. One person is in another. Uh, I, or we might use it when we come to surgery. I can remember Phil Luckham on this platform once talking about a BBC, BBC show about surgeons, hospital surgeons. And it was called Your Life in Their Hands. And Phil, who I think was working at the hospital at that point, said it would be better if they called that Their Hands in Your Life. <laughs> because when life is being saved... One person is, is in another person. So when we use this kind of language, it's, it's, it's language of the greatest intimacy. Life is being created. Life is being carried. Life is being saved. This, this, is, this is remarkably intimate language. Uh, you, I may have used this before here. So if, if you're looking for repeated illustrations for your Burnside bingo, here's, here's another chance, okay? One of the best little books I know on this whole union with Christ thing is Rory Shiner's One Forever. A tiny little book, very, very rich, very beautiful, very dense. And, and he says this, talking about the language of inness. To be fair, it is a hard idea to get your head around. I mean, what does it mean exactly to be in Christ or for that matter to be in anybody? If someone tells me I follow Christ, I get that. Under Christ, yeah, I know what that means to be under someone. Saved by Christ, got it. Inspired by, check, and so on. Those are concepts I understand. Christ as leader, Lord, saviour. But in Christ almost seems to portray Christ as a place or a sphere, a location. How does that work? Imagine yourself at the airport about to board a plane. The plane's on its way to sunny Melbourne. And Melbourne's where you want to be. What relationship do you need to have with the plane at this point? Would it help to be under the plane? To submit yourself to the plane's eminent authority in the whole flying to Melbourne thing? Or would it help to be inspired by the plane? To watch it fly off and whisper, one day I hope to do that too. What about following the plane? You know the plane's going to Melbourne, so if you, it stands to reason if you take note of the direction and you pursue it, you too will end up there. He says, of course, the relationship you need with the plane isn't to be under it or behind it or inspired by it. You need to be in it. Why? Because by being in the plane, what happens to the plane will also happen to you. The question, did you get to Melbourne, will be part of a larger question. Did the plane get to Melbourne? And if the answer to the second question is yes, and you were in the plane, what happened to the plane will also have happened to you. You see where he's going with this? I think at heart, he says, the biblical idea of being in Christ is something like that. According to the New Testament, to be in Christ is to say that by union with him, 
Whatever is true of him is now true of us. He died, we died. He is raised, we are and will be raised. He is vindicated, we are vindicated. He is loved, we are loved. And so on, all because we are in him. I find that deeply helpful. If I'm in Jesus, where he's gone, I've gone. And where he is, I am. And, and there are some fantastic implications of that, aren't there? So Paul, in Colossians 3, paints one of them nice and big and clear, doesn't he? Colossians 3, 1 to 3. If you've been raised with Christ, he says, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died. If we're in Christ and he died, we died. And your life is now hidden with Christ. I find this genuinely practically helpful. I, I really do, and I'm sure you do too. When we're, when we're in the weeds of everyday life, when we're in all those moments of pressure and disappointment and brokenness and, and all the stuff that most of us will experience at some point in most days, I, I will try to remember Colossians 3, 1 to 3 and say, my actual spiritual location is I am in Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. That's where I am. It's the safest place in the cosmos. I could not be more secure. I could not be safer. Ultimately, nothing can touch me. And I need to remember, if I'm in Christ and he died, I died. My agenda died. My priorities died. My self-centeredness died. Uh, my, the whole thing that wants me to be the middle, that, how did Foster Wallace describe it? The automatic, unconscious belief that I'm the center of the world. It died. I've got to remember it died, but it died. And my life is now in him. In him. And of course, that also means this beautiful reality. It's not just that we are there with him, because that, would, that could lead to a kind of pie in the sky when you die, unreality, lack of engagement in the world we're in, couldn't it? The, the parallel truth simultaneously expressed is, I am in you. Where you are now, I am with you. So I, I love Christianity. It just makes so much sense, doesn't it? I need the security to know that in the midst of life's crazy storms, uh, I am absolutely and ultimately and utterly safe. In the midst of all the disappointments and brokenness, nothing can ultimately touch me because I am in Christ and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And I also need to know that I'm not there yet fully. I'm still on this earth as well. That's, that's spiritually true, but bodily, here I am on this earth now. And so in everything that Jesus has called me to do now, I need his presence, I need his strength, I need his inspiration. So he is in me. So if Jesus is in the Father and Jesus is in us, does that also mean the Father is in us? Yes, it does. Verse 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching and my Father will love them and we will come to them and we will make our home with them. It's no surprise, is it, that when Paul is, is talking to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3, 
he says to them, why are you acting like mere human beings? Because they're not. They're not mere human beings. They are human beings who are indwelt with the spirit of their creator, who has also brought them the son and the father. So the whole of the Godhead dwells in these human lives. They are not mere human beings. If we had to do a kind of paraphrase, I think, if we had to summarize the teaching of 1 Corinthians uh, in one phrase, I think we could summarize it like this. It's Paul saying to the Corinthians, will you stop pratting about? I think that's what 1 Corinthians is all about. Stop pratting about. You are not mere human beings. All this Paul, Apollos, Peter nonsense, will you stop pratting about? You are indwelt with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Uh, Christ is, is in you. One of the great lasting legacies, I think, of my time at Belmont was, and I think he's in the room, so apologies for the embarrassment, was, was watching Dave Knowles have a zero, when he was chairman of the, um, of the eldership and then the leadership team, Dave Knowles having a zero tolerance policy for nonsense in the church. Those of us who sat under Dave's leadership on that team, I think we'll remember that really clearly. The number of times he did the Paul thing and he just went, we're not mere human beings. We're not pratting about. We're on mission. We're on mission. Christ is in us and we're in him. And where he is and where he goes, that's where we go. So we're not going to get wrapped up in inward-facing nonsense. We're going to stop pratting about and we're going to get on with this. We're going to leave the harbour and we're actually going to get on with it because we're in the safest possible place in the cosmos. I'm, I'm not a particularly visually minded person, but I know that lots of us are. So just in case th this, this image helps us. Uh, is this, in this picture, is the ocean in the bucket or is the bucket in the ocean? Both. And if, if the ocean is the Lord Jesus and if the bucket is you, is Jesus in you or are you in him? Both. And we need both those truths, don't we? we? We need both of them. Forgive me for the crudeness of this illustration, but just in case you know, you're a more visual thinker, this might help you. I need Jesus to be with me wherever I am. I need that. I need, I need to keep on being filled with the Spirit, who is the Lord. I, I need that every day. To live the life Jesus has called me to live, I have to have his indwelling life in me. So it's absolutely fantastic that he is in me. That's true for all of us in this room. If we're going to do the good works that he's prepared in advance for us to do, we will not be able to do them in our own strength. We have got to have Jesus in us. So it's great that he's in us. But at the same time, sorry. But at the same time, we have to be in him. We, we need that immense security of knowing that we are in the safest place in the cosmos and nothing can ever touch us. So we need to know that we are also in him. At the end of uh, this, this afternoon, we're, we're just going to look at some of the ways this clashes out in, in everyday life, particularly the way it works in our, in our life together as church. How does this, this theological reality, how does this spiritual reality actually cash out in the way we live? But, but sometimes we, we see it, don't we, in just looking at some of the old saints who've gone before us. So this is how um, Hudson Taylor's son, Frederick, described him. Here was a man, Frederick Taylor, writing after his dad's death, said, Here was a man, almost 60 years of age, bearing tremendous burdens, yet absolutely calm and untroubled. Oh, the pile of letters. 
any one of which might contain news of death or lack of funds or riots or serious trouble, yet all were opened and read and answered with the same tranquility. Christ, his reason for peace and his power for calm. And Frederick goes on, dwelling in Christ, he drew upon his very being and resources. And this he did by an attitude of faith as simple as it was continuous. Yes, yet he was delightfully free and natural. I can find no words to describe it, save the scriptural expression, in God. He was in God all the time, and God was in him. It was that true abiding of John 15. And, of course, although we, in our individualistic cultures, will often think of the yous in a verse like John 14, 20, as us as individuals, of course, in the original, they're all plural. They're all plurals. So we are filled with the Lord Jesus together as a community, which is why he's going to say in the next chapter, this is my command, love one another. It's why he's going to say a couple of chapters later when he's praying to his father, I pray that all of them may be one father, just as you are in me and I am in you. The pattern for our unity together is the closeness that the father has for the son. And the Son has for the Father. And the spirit of unity makes that possible for us together. And it's when we're genuinely, truly together in Christ that the world will see just who he is. And what his body on this earth is capable of. So that's just a little bit of uh, of foundational stuff. And I know that you know that. I know that you know that. And we're going to unpack it a little bit uh, in terms of some practical implications as we finish this afternoon. Um, Could we just say it together again? Could we say it together again? Should we do that? On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. One more time. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. John 14, 20. One more time. On that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. John 14, 20. And we bless you.